Thank you, Ellen. Well, good morning. It's really, it is wonderful to be here. I have visited Southlands once before and do know a number of you and have met you before, so it's so great to see people that I uh, have seen before. And Ellen and Ronell mean the world um, to Taryn and I. Really, really mean that. Ellen is such a, a faithful friend and encourager, pastor to pastors. So uh, Ellen and Ronell, we really love you and appreciate you. And it's wonderful to be here. All right, well, uh, I... A couple of years ago, we had a, a, there was a young woman in Singapore who was very young. She was in her early 20s. She was diagnosed with uh, a very serious form of cancer, and the doctors weren't sure whether she would make it or not. She had been raised in a Christian family, but was not serving the Lord. And through her adversity, uh, she came to put her hope in Jesus. She came to put her faith in Him. And she discovered the, the, the wonder, the love, the intimacy of walking with Jesus. And she ended up coming to the church. She got baptized. She gave a testimony to the church. She became a Christian. Uh, her boyfriend at the time, she led him to Jesus. He joined the church, was baptized, and became a member as well. And I remember uh, hearing her talk, and she spoke about how, surprisingly, she was actually so grateful for this illness that had come to her. And people were kind of saying, how could you talk that way? And she said, because without that, I would never have come. Well, I don't think I would have come to know how wonderful Jesus is. And this suffering, this adversity has brought me to Him, to know Him and to love Him. And it is worth all of it together. Now, in our passage here today, Paul is gonna talk about suffering and our groaning in the midst of it. So I want us to think a little bit this morning about adversity and difficulty. Uh, Paul Miller in his book, uh, talks about three different ways that we experience adversity and suffering. The first is suffering of difficult circumstances. I mean, so many of these that we can think about, right? COVID that has come to us recently. Uh, it could be maybe just living in a cultural way. Maybe your children being exposed to various cultural winds and influences. And you feel like it's just so hard to raise uh, children in a day and age like this. Maybe colleagues or former friends of yours kind of know that you're a Christian and they interpret your faith in Jesus as being something which is toxic or harmful or hateful to them, dangerous to them. And they kind of cancel you out of their lives. And suddenly you realize just by virtue of, of following Jesus, there are these circumstances that are actually really difficult. Miller talks about the suffering of resisting sin. How as Christians, because we love Jesus and follow Him, there's some things that we gladly say no to. Uh, and there's some things we say no to, maybe not so gladly, but we do so because we love Jesus and we follow Him and our flesh is tempted. But as Paul says in Romans 8, we put the flesh to death by the work of the Spirit. And this is a form of adversity. It's a form of uh, suffering that we face in our world. And the last kind that Miller talks about is the suffering that comes from choosing to love somebody. The suffering that comes from choosing to love someone. When you suffer because you've made a commitment to a group of people, to a person, you're gonna be with them. You're gonna weep when they weep. You're gonna rejoice when they rejoice. And anyone who's married knows this, right? Not to play up the uh, adversities of marriage too much, but you choose to make a covenant to walk with someone for better or worse, richer and, and poorer, and two sinners come into a marriage together, it's gonna be difficult at times. But because of the, those vows and that commitment to love one another, you end up enduring things and going through things that maybe in a perfect world you think, I would prefer not to do. Now, I wanna ask you this morning, how, do you how are you presently experiencing 
adversity or suffering. And how do you respond to that? There are a number of different ways that we can respond to suffering incorrectly. Some of us are just so adverse to suffering that we want to avoid it at all costs. You would rather move house, move to a different part of the country, change job, change your relationships. You change anything rather than suffer. There are some people, you would rather sin than suffer. There's temptation put before you. You don't want to put up with adversity. You'd much rather just give in to sin. Maybe for some, you'd rather cancel people than suffer. Someone treats you badly or does something that you, you know, deem to be unpleasant and it's just far easier to cancel them. Deem them to be toxic and cut them out entirely. In this kind of thinking, we think suffering will ruin our lives. It'll take away our joy. It's not worth it. So we just avoid it. But maybe some, maybe some of you can do what I'm prone to do, which is not endure it, but sorry, not uh, avoid it, but endure it, but in the wrong kind of a way. You become proud. You become hard. You say, I will push through any adversity. This is my duty. This is what it means to be alive in a fallen world. And I will just grit my teeth and I will, I will just do this. You become self-reliant. You don't think about it and engage your heart in it too much. And what begins to happen is you begin to become somewhat hardened by your suffering because you develop a hard, thick skin, a hardened heart to enable you to not feel the pain of what you're going through. And when this happens, you begin to look down upon other people that are suffering not as well as you. Can't you just, you know, be stronger? Can't you just be tough like me? I can do it. And you begin to lose something of your softness, something of your compassion for others. You become self-righteous in it. You expect other people to be a little bit like you. You lose something of your humanity, who God's made you to be. In other words, we think suffering will ruin our lives, so we harden our heart to it so we don't feel it. Or finally, we can just give in to despair. Maybe some of you have a high view of God in terms of His sovereignty, and you say, you know, God is sovereign over all things. There's nothing I can do about this now. And so you just kind of resign yourself to it. There's nothing that you can do about it, but you begin to grow bitter toward him. You forlorn, become jealous of others whose lives have panned out differently to yours, maybe angry with God. You think suffering is, is ruining your life and you can't change it. You just become bitter toward God. And all these responses show us that whilst our own personal suffering is, actually, is seldom the result of our own personal sin. There's, no, there's a correlation between suffering in the world and Adam and Eve's sin. Of course, that's what brought brokenness into the world. But there's not a direct correlation between your and my suffering in our own circumstances and our own personal sin. But what these show us is that even though there may not be a direct correlation between your suffering, sorry, your sin and your suffering, often our suffering can lead us to respond in a way that actually is, sin, is sinful. And why is this? We don't consider our suffering to be worth anything. But today, God wants to show us just two points from our passage that will help us. Two things from Him that will help us to suffer well, to live faithfully as we wait for Him. So we're gonna read Romans chapter eight, verse uh, 18 through to verse 25. Paul says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. 
For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. We're gonna see very simply this morning, two things. Firstly, hope helps us to suffer well. And secondly, the Spirit helps us to suffer well. So let's dive in. To see what Paul wants from us here, we can look at our first and the last lines of our text. The first line, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And in the last line says, but if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. What Paul is saying here is he wants you and I to endure suffering and adversity with a sense of expectant, hopeful patience in God. And the way that we do this, he says, is by considering that our present sufferings and adversity is nothing compared to the coming glory that is coming our way. And Paul is saying that hope, if you live with a sense of hope, that there's, there is hope for you, that you can endure all different kinds of suffering. Now, in the Christian faith, hope is different to the way that hope is normally spoken about in the world. Hope in the world is spoken about like, I hope um, Manchester United is gonna win the Premier League or something along those lines, right? I mean, it's exactly, it's not gonna, even I have given up hope of that this year. It's not gonna happen. But a hope is like something that you wish for. But in the Christian faith, hope is rather something God has promised us and told us that we can cling to. It's something certain, it's absolutely going to happen. And Paul is saying here, the hope that the gospel gives us enables us to endure and go through our suffering well. In Singapore, I'm sure like in LA, we love our food and there is so much good food everywhere. In fact, a couple of years ago, 300 meters from my office, there's like a food court, a market, and this little stall that sells like three and a half, four dollar roasted meat ended up getting awarded one of two Michelin stars in Singapore. And seriously, it's like all over the papers. It's incredible. And that place had a line of people waiting to buy the food before it got a Michelin star. Sometimes if I had a lot of time, I'd wait in it, not always. But afterwards, man, that line was, it was like an hour and a half just to buy your lunch. Now, why are people willing to line up for $4 roasted meat. Why? Because of the glory that is coming. Because they have had it before, they, they've tasted and they are waiting and they are willing to endure with joy, with gladness. They're not complaining and moaning, they're just patiently waiting. They know, man, just give them a, a bit of time, it's gonna be worth all of it. And Paul's talking that way to say, we hope for what we, we, we uh, God's promised us something this hope that we have, and this enables us to wait with patience. And this hope is uh, that the coming glory is like nothing that we have experienced now. And this passage, Paul's not just making the point generally that hope helps us to endure difficulty. Paul is gonna tell us what that hope is. And he is talking about big 
cosmic hope. This hope is the redemption of our bodies, the restoration of all creation. What exactly is this restoration? It's being made new in Jesus, where you are gonna be you, your own personality, your quirks, who you are, but just like with none of the faults, none of the weaknesses, none of the temptations to sin. If you're driven, if you have like a a go-getter personality, you will still have that personality, but you'll never use that to like abuse people to get what you want. You will only use that to serve and to love people and it'll be worked out in perfect harmony with the rest of creation. It's gonna be amazing. You're gonna be you in the most glorious way. And the futility, the frustrations of this broken world and our broken lives are all coming to an end. Where groaning is gonna come to an end. We're no longer gonna be wrecked and broken, but renewed. And friends, not only are we gonna simply just avoid or escape adversity and suffering in this new world, but we're gonna rule and reign there. In C.S. Lewis's um, book, The Horse and His Boy, he tells, it's the story of a small boy called Shasta who grows up with a man who he assumes is his father, who's mean, cruel, doesn't feed him enough and works him to the bone. And life is miserable. He's like, what kind of a life is this? But he hasn't known anything else. But there's something that doesn't make sense inside of him. Until one day, someone comes to visit this man, Shasta sent to his room, but he listens to their conversation through a crack in the door. And as he hears the conversation, he overhears this man talking and he discovers he's not this man's son at all. He was purchased from a slave trader when he was a tiny boy. And this person bought him and raised him so that he could work for him in his shop. And Shasta hears where he's from. He hears about this land. He has a longing to go there, to experience that, to find his people, to not live under these conditions anymore. And the story is about how he sets off to go and find this land. One of the most amazing things about the story is that when he finally gets to the land where he is and is filled with a sense of relief, and it, it, it's, as, it's as wonderful as, as he imagined, he discovers not only is he home, but that he was stolen as a baby boy from the king. He is a prince. The king of that land is his father. And he belongs to him. And he's gonna rule and reign now. And this passage uses similar kind of language. That through Christ, we're the heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, who are gonna rule over this creation and yes, invent and send people to the moon and it's gonna be wild, it's gonna be incredible as God intended for us to be in the garden. And Paul is saying, we're to wait for this with patience. And this will enable us to endure the adversities that we go through. And this, the, the fact that this is our hope actually shapes how we think about our adversities now. Because Paul tells us in Romans 8 and in other places that the way that we get to this hope is because of Jesus. And the way Jesus brings us to that hope is through the path of suffering himself. Jesus has willingly and freely chosen to enter into the most awful suffering for you and I. He's chosen to suffer at the cross for our sins. And he's done this to bring us to glory. So Jesus, who enjoyed glory with the Father, glory that we've never tasted, willingly laid that aside to come to earth 
in order to bring you and I, who also laid aside our glory of God, not uh, in love for someone else, but actually in selfishness, turning our back away from God and therefore lost the sense of God's glory upon us and we fall short of it. But Jesus has laid aside His to come and to bring us back to glory by suffering at the cross for our sins. And Jesus, friends, suffers in all the ways that we suffer. He suffered through difficult circumstances, took on flesh, was betrayed by his friends, nailed to a cross, had the tide of public opinion turn against him. Jesus suffered, friends. The suffering of, of resisting temptation and sin. Jesus tempted by the devil in the wilderness to achieve some kind of glory on earth apart from the agony of the cross. That was the devil's temptation to him. Just bow down and worship me. I'll give all of this to you. And the subtext is Jesus can avoid suffering. He can avoid the cross. And then thirdly, Jesus suffered from choosing to love. For God so loved the world that he gave his son. Jesus so loved us, our friend, that he laid down his life for us and friends not only did Jesus suffer in similar ways than we do but Jesus suffered more than you and I ever will and the good news of this is that because Jesus willingly entered into absolute agony the father turning his face away this means that the sting of true suffering is taken away from us many of us live with an existential uh, worry and concern about our lives and the future not amounting to much, a fear of death and suffering reminds us of much of the futility of life. But friends, because Jesus suffered and pierced through death, because he, he, he took death upon himself, it means that the sting, not only of death, but the sting of our suffering here has been defeated by him too. Which means, yeah, suffering is, is awful. It sucks. But our suffering is nothing in comparison, firstly, to Jesus' suffering. But secondly, in line of the passage, more importantly, nothing in comparison to the coming glory that is coming our way. And we see in the passage that there is a kind of a pattern here, this pattern of the Christian life. There's, there's suffering and then there's glory. That's what's happening to creation. It's subject to futility. We can't explore that in detail. But then it's gonna be set free. There's gonna be glory. And for us, we struggle now, we suffer in these ways, but through Jesus, we're gonna go to glory. And all of this is modeled upon Jesus himself, who suffered first. This is the pattern, suffering first, and then the glory. In fact, but this is something every Christian knows at some level, right? In choosing to follow Jesus, we've repented. We've denied ourselves, we've picked up our cross. We've said no to certain things in our hearts and lives in order to follow Him because of the joy, the joy in the life of following Jesus. We heard this morning and in God's presence is fullness of this joy. And we've been ushered into this through the sufferings of our Savior. And this means, friends, coming back to the three incorrect ways that we can respond to suffering, instead of avoiding suffering at all costs and thinking it will ruin our lives, we actually don't have to live our best life now. I know that, that seems very countercultural, 
I was talking with someone in our church the other day saying, oh, I wish I had like seven lives to live and I could study this and I could do that and experience this and travel there and do all these things. And I was kind of moaning a little bit. And they looked at me and they were like, but you're gonna live forever. You can do all of that in heaven. And I was like, oh yeah, so embarrassing. I totally forgot about that. <laughs> it's like, I'm the pastor. Um, you know, they're like, Christians don't need, don't need a bucket list. We're gonna live forever. You can do all those things. It's like, yeah, yeah, sorry, yes, of course, absolutely, absolutely. Um, but secondly, instead of enduring suffering in the wrong way, being proud, stoic, self-reliant, we actually can come to Jesus with our sorrows and sadnesses in the midst of our adversity. We have a high priest who's gracious and compassionate, merciful, suffered, been tempted in so many ways, and is tender toward us. So we can actually feel our pain and our suffering. And we can bring it to Him, come to our wounded healer who meets us in the midst of our anxieties and sorrows and suffering and loves us and walks with us through it. It's amazing. This actually makes us more in touch with ourselves and able to love and serve and be compassionate to others in a deeper way. And finally, instead of giving in to despair, being bitter, you may still have questions about your suffering. You may still wonder why, what's God up to in this? It doesn't make sense to me, but you cannot come to the conclusion that he doesn't love you and is not for you because he's entered into a deeper suffering for you because of his love for you. And friends, this means today we can, we should have a glorious hope. We have a glorious hope, a renewed soul, a renewed body, renewed circumstances, new creation. And this means that our sufferings now cannot compare with the glory to be revealed. So I don't know, I hope, I trust, I pray today that this hope for us is vivid enough. Now, finally, our second point is a fair bit shorter, but some of us may have heard what I've just said and maybe we're thinking, does this mean the Christian faith, the power of the Christian faith is really that it helps us think about things in the right way? Is it just a philosophy? Does it just give us a worldview and hope and that's what helps us get through what we're going through now? Well, I live in Asia. There are, we have many very, very intelligent and smart people in our church. And one of the things I've loved about ministering there is having to just learn and engage my mind in a richer way. And what I have just been so blown away by is how coherent the Christian faith is how intellectually it holds together and gives us an incredible philosophy of life and worldview. I, I love that. But friends, the Christian faith is not simply a philosophy. It's not simply just a way of thinking about life, although those things are all true. In, in our faith, God gives us help now as we wait. And this is our second point. The Spirit helps us to suffer well. Friends, Paul does not simply just say that the gospel is some intellectual hope that we think about. There is practical help given for us, given to us now as we wait. And so Paul says in verse 23, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Friends, hope's help here is that the first fruits of the, of the Spirit is given to us now who helps us to wait with patience. And Romans 8, Romans 5 has shown us who the Spirit is. Romans 5 says that God has poured, poured His Spirit into our hearts by 
um, sorry, has poured His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says that this same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is gonna give life to your and my mortal bodies. And it's this Spirit inside of us now who in the midst of adversity and difficulty and suffering, cries out to God, God, Abba, Father, turns our hearts toward Him. So the Spirit is at work in us to kind of direct our hearts back to the Father again and again to assure us and to help us as we wait with this kind of patience. And the word here um, for the Spirit is, is the word first fruits. It's like in a harvest, the first part that comes in that shows you. The first parts come in, there's a whole crop coming in. The language that Ephesians uses to describe the same idea is a deposit, a guarantee. It's like if you go and buy a house and you have to put down a deposit and I don't know what that is here, 10%, 20%, I have no idea what you have to pay. In Singapore, it's pretty high. When you put down that deposit, you have to put down a percentage of what you're gonna finally pay for that house. You have to put down something of the same substance that you will use to finally pay for that entire house. You can't say, yep, my house costs X amount. I'm gonna put 20% down, but I'm gonna give it to you in, I don't know, colored pictures that I've drawn. <laughs> the bank's like, look, I'm sure you color very nicely, but I want cold, hard cash. And the, the Bible here says the Spirit is given as the first fruits, as the deposit, as the down payment that what we're gonna enjoy in God's presence forever, that fullness of joy, as we heard about Psalm 16, is given to us now in part. We begin to experience something of this joy and gladness in God now by His Spirit. And by God pouring His Spirit inside of you, God is laying claim to you. He's saying, you belong to me. And God is, is coming to claim what He's put down a deposit on. If you've ever put down a deposit on a property, you don't wake up a few days later and say, you know what? I don't feel like moving there anymore. I'll just, we'll just buy another place somewhere else. You're like, I put down a lot of money there. I'm gonna go and complete that sale. And friends, God has put His Spirit inside of you if you belong to Jesus. And God is coming to claim you. God is coming to, to, to get the full value out of you. He's gonna bring you to glory. And Paul says the Spirit comes to do this. And the Spirit does this. He turns our hearts toward God to groan for our hope to assure us that we're sons and daughters as we're waiting. There's this sense of assurance that suffering may come and suffering may make us feel like, or the devil jumps on the back of our suffering and makes us feel like God's not for us. God's against us. God's forgotten us. There's no future and hope for us. No, the Spirit comes and directs our hearts toward God again. He is, he is for us. He's my Father. He's gonna bring me to glory. And friends, Paul here doesn't only want us simply to not be crushed by our sufferings. He actually wants our sufferings when the Spirit had work in us to allow our hope to be refined, to tune our hearts in a deeper way toward our sufferings. It says in verse 23 that, um, that we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. So there's a sense where the Spirit in the midst of our adversities leads us to groan and cry out to God as we wait eagerly for that hope. When the Spirit's not at work in us like this, our sufferings lead us to put our hope in something else. 
or be discouraged or turn away from God. No, this down payment, it turns our hearts toward God. There's a sense in which suffering here is supposed to tune our hearts to make us long for the hope that we have. And this is the experience of, of many people. When life is going comfortably, everything's going very well, we can sometimes forget about the kingdom to come. We can forget about God and His plans and His promises. But when we go through adversity and the Spirit is at work in us, we begin to long for heaven and live for that day. I was talking with someone recently who lost a lot of money uh, in the stock exchange. And then one or two other things happened that they suddenly had to pay like very large amounts of money for. And they just felt very, very vulnerable. And they were sharing, talking about how the strangest thing happened. As that happened, they just felt God draw near to them in such a deep and powerful way. So that sense of communion with God was so rich. And this person was saying, the craziest thing happened. I felt myself thinking, I don't want my stocks to go up again because I don't wanna lose the sense of closeness I have to God. And then he said, then I was thinking, well, I do want them to go up again, actually. He's like, I don't know which one I want. What's the point? Friends, when the Spirit meets us in this way, there's a richness that God wants us to enjoy in Him. And so, this means we, with the Spirit in us, end up groaning, longing, a sense of the, the first fruits, a sense of satisfaction and joy in God, and waiting for that final hope. And Paul's analogy here is an analogy of a mother in labor. I won't use too much time to talk about this because I don't have too much personal experience. But I think the point here is that a woman in labor is experiencing suffering and pain, but she knows that pain is gonna lead to something amazing, something glorious. And so she is longing and groaning for the pain to stop, why? So she can hold the baby, she wants her child. And this spirit's deposit makes us long for what's coming more in the midst of our sufferings and our pain. So friends, this, this work of this, when, when we find our hearts attuned to God in a deeper way, we know the Spirit is at work in us, sometimes subconsciously, but He's cultivating in us the sense of hope and love for God. And this is a gift that God wants to lavish upon us and, and pour out upon us. He gives without measure. So I wanna end this morning by reminding us, by reminding you of the amazing hope that we have that is built upon the good news of Jesus. Jesus, friends, has not left us alone. He has come. He is fixing the world. He's taking us with Him. As we wait for Him to return, He's poured out a Spirit upon us. Yes, our pattern is like His. He suffered, but then glory. We are in Him. We will suffer here too, but after suffering, a glory. And this means we can live patiently with the Spirit's help as we cultivate hope for that day. So maybe as we wrap up, there are some here this morning, maybe the way that God is speaking to you today is He's wanting to put some gospel resolve inside of you from the hope that we have. That in the midst of your adversities, whatever kind of suffering it is, circumstances or putting sin to death or the, the, the difficulty that comes from choosing to love, he wants to put, he wants to fill you with a sense of hope of the glory to come. So there can be a deeper resolve inside of you to live this out with a sense of joy. Maybe for some, you need your stoic, slightly hardened heart softened. 
You need your own strength melted by the love of Jesus, our suffering Savior. He doesn't call you just to grit your teeth and get through it on your own strength, but comes to be with you, comes to be a tender shepherd to lead you through that and help you to feel and know his love tenderly. Can you close your eyes and pray? Uh, Can you close your eyes as I pray and ask God to help us? Father, we, we do come before you this morning. We thank you for your amazing love for us. We, do, we, we confess this morning that we do not understand all of your ways. We often think we know how to run this world better than you. And yet, Lord God, at the cross, we see your goodness, your love and your mercy. We see that you, as Paul will say in Romans 8, you are for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? You did not spare your son for us. How much more will you not graciously give us all things? And so, Father, we open our hearts to you this morning. Whatever circumstances we're in, we pray your spirit would fill us afresh. You would make the reality of our hope real to us again, that we may follow you faithfully. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.